We said we'd be back, and here we are. Welcome to episode two of the Movement Docs podcast. Today we'll be talking with our good buddy Sam Spinelli, who's also known as the Strength Therapist. Today's topic of discussion is going to be growing up in grad school. Hope you guys enjoy. Hey guys, and welcome to episode two of the Movement Docs podcast. Um, I'm Jake, and this is Mike. You're supposed to. You, this is normally when Mike would say, "This is Mike." Go ahead and say that, Mike. Oh God, <laughs> let's restart it. <laughs> hey guys, and welcome to episode two of the Movement Docs podcast. I'm Jake, and I'm Mike, and uh, we're the Movement Docs. Uh, today we got a special guest, uh, Sam Spinelli, the strength therapist from. Instagram and Facebook fame. Uh, you guys may have heard of him, especially if you're on Clinical Athlete. He's all all up in those forums. Um, Sam is the co-founder of The Strength Therapist, a company devoted to providing the best education possible about all things related to strength, rehab, and performance. Originally from the great white north of Canada. Yes, ladies, he is a Canuck. And he's married. Sam spent five years working with high-level hockey and Olympic sport athletes as a strength and conditioning coach. Currently, he's taken up a nomad status in the U.S. to pursue his doctorate of physical therapy and hang out with really smart people. I don't, I don't know if that he means us, but he is hanging out with us, so I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you, Sam. <clears throat> Outside of spending his spare time reading research papers, playing with dogs, and drinking coffee, he is a competitive strength athlete in sports such as powerlifting, weightlifting, strongman, and Highland Games. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so... Um, Mike, what's our uh, topic of discussion today? So we're going to be talking a little bit about growing up in grad school. So we're going to talk about all of these different experiences that we've had uh, in grad school and kind of, Sam, we're hoping to kind of get your perspectives on how, uh, how you've developed over your past about two and a half years now in grad school, uh, some of the things that you've learned. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the strength therapists and hopefully get some details about that. And then also just talk about general life advice and different ways that we can continue to move forward. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. Like, I think that's going to be, yeah, we should, we should have some good stuff here today. Um, but for those of our listeners, I mean, right now there's probably like three people that actually listen to this podcast, <laughs> but for those three people, Sam, um, you had a great little intro there, but I'm wondering if you could maybe give us a little bit more about yourself just to kind of let everybody know who you are and, um, you know, what, what kind of stuff you want to do with your life, with the world and, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you got for us. All right. So yeah, originally from Canada, uh, traveling around the States right now, finishing up my DPT. Uh, as you said, married, got some dogs, traveling around with them. Uh, things that I want to do, I'm trying to figure out a way where I can take the information that um, is going to provide the best help to as many people as possible and get it out there. I want to see some sort of change in our healthcare system, not just in the U.S., but across the globe and see if we can find some sort of strategy to make just a, a gl improved global effect and see, especially if we can get a more active population. So I don't know exactly where that's going to take me, but that's sort of the mission that I'm on. Uh, one avenue I use is my social media for that and trying to change the dogmatic belief of you know frailty and try and strive people to be more, resi more resilient and also just know that um, you know, humans are badass, so let's live a badass life. Sorry, I definitely <laughs> swore twice. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. We'll, we'll, we won't edit it out. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, so based off what you just said there, you seem to draw a lot from your strength and conditioning background. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe kind of talk a little bit more about that and like how you got involved with, with strength and conditioning, with strength sports, with athletes, and what made you transition into PT? Yeah, so when I was in high school, I got started into lifting. Um, I had a questionable youth, and I sort of found fitness, and it drastically changed my life. I have a bit of an addictive personality, so I got kind of obsessed with it. And it all, through fitness, it also got me into sports. I uh, never played any sports before I was in high school, and then I got into lifting. And that drove me into sports like basketball, rugby, football. And uh, over that time, I, you know, I lifted primarily for improving myself as an athlete. And then I finished up high school and didn't really have anything to 
uh, do for sports. And so I kind of took lifting a little bit more seriously. I kind of transitioned into becoming a personal trainer. The area of Canada that I'm from is like pretty known for oil. And I was working in the oil field at the time when I graduated high school. And I really hated my life. So I chose to uh, become a personal trainer in the evenings. I was very fortunate that I took a personal training class from a guy named Dean Somerset. And so from like day one of becoming a personal trainer, I kind of got my mind set about not being like a crappy personal trainer and got a lot of great information from him. That led me to him telling me to go to university and do more with my life. And from there, I chose to go to a university in the uh, city of Edmonton. And while I was there, I took a strength and conditioning class in one of my first semesters. And the guy that taught it, his name is Barry Budd. He owns a company in Edmonton called Premier Strength. And from day one, we hit it off. And he pretty much brought me on to become like a teaching assistant. And uh, at the end of the semester, he offered me a job with this company. And so I was uh, I think 19 when I started. And it brought me into strength and conditioning. I got to hang out with professional hockey players, Olympic sport athletes, and just some of the best athletes that were in the city of Edmonton and surrounding area. And uh, the place there, I got to give credit there. They, they were fantastic. And, um, you know, they're very focused on providing the best care. So they do a lot of continuing education and they really helped develop me into a pretty smart person. And from there, I kind of just became obsessed with strength and conditioning and um, learning as much as possible. And it drove me down the route of uh, eventually physical therapy, trying to be able to provide more to athletes. So uh, <clears throat> I noticed you said you worked with some Olympic teams um, up in, you know, up in Canada. I know the question on everyone's mind is, um, how much did you help the Canadian Olympic curling team? Oh man, way more than you would ever know. <laughs> um, and do you get a lot with the, especially with the sweeping technique, do you get a lot of shoulder impingement with that? Yeah, actually, um, you know, like a lot of rotator cuff tears and uh, slap lesions. What about, what about when you have to put the stone? It seems to be a very technical movement. It's very, it's a very heavy you rock. You know, that's all about timing. It's a very coordinated activity. You gotta be very careful with your rate of force development. So it takes a lot of training. I, I love how uh, we took something incredibly ludicrous and made it even more ridiculous. <laughs> so thank thank you for entertaining my uh, my stream of consciousness. Absolutely, um, <laughs> Sam. This is Mike. I know, I know you had a question for. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as I'm dying over here laughing from this back and forth that you guys just had. Uh, it sounds like you had an amazing uh, experience, kind of working through this process of to getting to ultimately where you are now. You know, you were able to, to use fitness as a platform uh, and to, to kind of really take hold of that into other sports and then to, to work into, you know, your careers and what you have now. Uh, how have you taken your experiences thus far and applied it to uh, your clinicals at in PT school and, and in life in general and how you interact with people and where you're at? Yeah, no, the, they've been an incredible foundation for me, uh, even regardless of being just physical therapy, if you look across the board. I think that I had some great influencers, guys like Dean Somerset and then Mike Boyle, Eric Cressy, and some of the stuff that they were always expressing is that you have to be able to make that human connection with people and learning how to be just a good person in general. And from those, I've been, I think, very fortunate in my interactions with others that I come off as being like a very nice person generally, and that helps to build good relationships going forward. But then in the actual physical therapy you know, clinical setting, if you're able to connect with a person on a deeper level and also demonstrate care, I think that you're just setting yourself up for way better outcomes. I think that I whenever think the just... patient is looking at the physical therapist and they don't have the perception that they're, you know, they're genuinely interested or they're even just, uh, you know, completely bought into what's going on, you're going to have less of a, um, less results with that patient. So, there's been a constant reoccurring theme at any place I've been is that they talk about how nice I am. They always make jokes that it's because I'm Canadian. Which <laughs> I'll take I'll take the compliments, but I think it's just that 
the the group of individuals that helped to develop me, they pushed that kind of um, belief system. And I think that if we look even into the evidence, it supports that. I think that, that I mean, what you just said is um, incredibly profound, especially for, you know, students going into the clinic or just clinicians that have kind of like maybe forgotten a little bit about why they want to be a clinician. But I think that just when you boil it down to what physical therapy is, it's human interaction, right? We're in a room ideally for about an hour with another human. And if you can't make that connection that you're talking about, if you can't be a nice person and try to create that therapeutic relationship, we've, we've already failed right there. Couldn't agree more with that. You know, you just you just reminded me, Sam. You know, talking about empathy and building that rapport and being able to connect with your with your patients and really just anyone in general. Uh, just reminded me, I had a I had a CI once in a inpatient rotation, so it was in the hospital setting, and uh, all, she had the best relationship with every patient that was in there. And then it could have been somebody that had sepsis or somebody that had a total knee replacement or somebody that had a stroke and you know was a little bit confused and agitated. And uh, I asked her one day, I was just like, how, how are you, how are you, how are you so good at this? You know, like what, what's your secret? And she said, she said, the moment that I started having success was the moment that I started treating each of my patients like my family. And that, that really struck a chord and started resonating. You know, it's, uh, that was huge. That's a great perspective. Yeah. I think that for a lot of people, especially those that maybe struggle a bit more with it, that might be a valuable mindset change for them. Mm-hmm. That's such a who, Mike. Which um, who was that? Who was your CI? Because you were at Winchester Medical, right? I was. Yeah, that was uh, that was Susan Peterman. Uh, so she was uh, she's the director of the contract services. And so we got to travel mm-hmm. to a bunch of different hospitals in the area. But she's a phenomenal CI. Uh, really engaging, will challenge you, and has an amazing relationship and rapport with every person that she meets. Yeah, I just want to give her a shout out for being awesome. And um, <laughs> obviously she's a she's a CI. So if anybody out there. Um, is looking for a really, really cool um, individual to work with in the inpatient setting. Um, she might be a good one to, good one to track down. Um, so I know you talked about, you know, getting into PT school and, and moving to the U.S. But um, why was it that you made that change from Canada to the U.S. Uh, school systems? Yeah, you're asking like a, uh, a pretty complex question. So, you know. There was a number of factors that kind of drove me to it. One was the the theoretical perspective that the schooling in the U.S. would be better. In Canada, it's a master's degree. Here in the U.S., it's a doctorate. And upon like viewing that, I, I thought that coming to the U.S., I'd have a better ability to get a greater education. There's a lot more business potential here for me. There's greater opportunities with strength and conditioning, seeing the world, and then also the factor of like, Getting into PT school in Canada is very competitive, and I probably could have got in, but it wouldn't have been easy. I had a fairly competitive GPA, and when I chose to upgrade, like I, I finished my four-year degree and then had to do an extra year. And uh, during that time, like I bumped up my grades where I probably could have gotten in, but it would have been maybe a situation where I would have had to do another year of upgrading. And for me, I plan to probably going to the U.S. anyways. Interesting. I guess, um, I mean, obviously Mike and I are from the U.S., so we don't really have that same perspective, but um, it's interesting to hear that, um, you know, just kind of your your experience and, and what, what made you come over to the States. Um, now, being in school now, do you feel that you have gotten a different quality education than in Canada? Yeah. Um, I don't think that that's an easy, easy answer as I think that the actual didactic education I receive is probably slightly superior just because of the fact that I'm in school for a longer duration of time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like in Canada, they don't learn about pharmaceuticals or get much imaging education. So in those aspects, I did learn more. But from the stuff that probably matters to a greater degree, I'd say a lot of that came from self-education. And I probably would have done the same thing if I was back in Canada. What um, when you when you talk about self education, are you talking about just like reading articles on your on your own, or is there any um, like group of people that that maybe like helped you out? <laughs> yeah, well, I would say that 
first and foremost, uh, yeah, pursuing the research articles myself and reading, and then also guidance from people like that of Clinical Athlete, which is obviously how you and I know each other, but also other people on there like Quinn Hennick, Derek Miles, Michael Ray, those guys have been hugely influential on me. And then also people like Greg Lehman and whoever else may get involved in the uh, Facebook world and just throwing out articles for myself to even read. So for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, Clinical Athlete, can you give us a little bit of a synopsis of it? Yeah, so Clinical Athlete is a company that was started by Quinn Hennick and Derek Sawyer, where their goal was to provide a network for athletes to be able to find a good clinician. So whether that be a physical therapist, a chiropractor, an MD, a surgeon, even strength and conditioning coaches, someone who would be more evidence-based. And so in order to be listed on the directory, you have to be an individual who's been screened by Quinn. So they talk on the phone, you make sure that you're not someone that's gonna sell you guruism. And then uh, in addition to that, there's the behind the scenes forum where for anyone who is a member of Clinical Athlete, we can come on and we can have discussions, we can throw down and have a discussion about different information. Is manual therapy the bee's knees? Are modalities where we wanna go? Is exercise good? Who knows? And uh, let us not forget the great mobility war of 2017. <laughs> Man, uh, what most, is mobility? That's a great question. <laughs> one of the most infamous um, clinical athlete forums, I think, to date. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to show you that at some point in time. That's okay. well worth well worth the read. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> So Sam, you uh, you had mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago uh, that you had moved to the U.S. you know to pursue your degree and also that there are better opportunities for business. Uh, and so we understand that you're the co-founder of the Strength Therapist. And mm -hmm. so we're just kind of curious, uh, why the Strength Therapist? And uh, if you could just talk a little bit about how that started and, and what you're doing with that. Sure. Yeah. When I I started working as a personal trainer and strength coach. And over that time, I started having a lot of inquiries from people of various places like word of mouth where they wanted to work with me, but they weren't close. And so then it was basically distance pr programming and coaching. And I started to get actually like a lot of people trying to pursue me that way. And uh, in discussion with a couple of friends I had, we opted to create a business together. And that's the, the first business that I had formed before for online programming and also to get information out there. And then just over time, the way that I wanted to structure a business very much changed. I wanted to go down the route of more education focus. And so I had stepped away from the previous company and in discussion with my wife, we wanted to create something where we could both have a role. And, um, this, and I wanted to have something that would have a name that would be more than just myself, like just not, not just Sam Spinelli. I wanted to be something that would be able to take on a greater um, encompassing title so that if someone else wanted to be involved in it, then they, it could take that on. And so the strength therapist came out as a title. Uh, therapist is an individual who seeks to help others. And strength is something that I firmly believe is a valuable quality to work on. And that can take on the, the side of strength in the physical terms, but also in emotional and mental and that term came out of it, the strength therapist. And uh, so that's been something that I've been working on since around January of last uh, or of this year. Okay. Huh. So you, you really got the ball rolling like right around the time that I met you on Clinical Athlete. Yeah. Like I had a previous company that I had done social media with, but honestly, it was like, I, I, it wasn't pursued very well. So. Um, most people didn't know anything of it. That's so, that's so crazy because, um, you know, I've always looked at you as like this huge internet celebrity, you and, <laughs> you and Jason LePage, uh, with just like all the really cool content that you guys put out on Instagram. And I mean, had I, I had no idea that you had pretty much just started that whole thing in January of this year. Yeah. That's pretty awesome, man. Thank you. <laughs> What, uh, what would you say your, your biggest challenge was for starting that, 
and then that process to where you are now? Like, what was your biggest growth factor or some things that you learned along the way? Mm -hmm. I'd probably say learning the market, learning what they wanted. Okay. I looked at when I first started out, I was initially putting out a lot of content that I think I was more interested in and things that I found interesting, which by no means is, is wrong. But if you're trying to pursue a larger population, you're going to, if you're a person that thinks like the three of us, I think the things that we're most likely interested, like the nitty gritty details, that's far beyond what the average reader is going to be interested in. They're probably looking more for the gross concepts, general information that's going to be valuable for their health. And um, when I'm talking about, you know, minor details within an ACL tear or the mechanisms to that, most of them don't give a crap about that. They're probably more interested in just general movement. Mm. So that was a huge change and um, something that I'm still honestly working with a lot. Okay. How did you, how did you find or find out what, what was interesting to, you know, the, the general population? Did you send out surveys or was it more so just like word of mouth or, or what, what kind of feedback tools did you use? Yeah, I, I tried to, you know, put up stuff like what are people interested, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that actually didn't do very well for me. Like I, pretty much no one responded. <laughs> so unfortunately it was more like I put out a post and I look at what the content is and I watched the likes, the views, and try to figure out based off of those things and then trying a variety of different kind of content, just seeing what took off. Okay. I, I was honestly incredibly surprised sometimes. Like I would put a lot of effort into some posts. I would try to find tons of articles and support this thing and make a great write-up, do something that might be an interesting video. And I'd put it out there and it'd get like, I don't know, 500 views. And the next day I'd be irritated and I just post something up just because I was trying to put out content on a regular basis. And then you get like 5,000 views <laughs> and it's crazy enough, but I would say probably of my top 10 most performing um, posts that I've ever put out, probably eight of them are things that I thought wouldn't be anything special. Huh. That's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Absolutely. So, <laughs> seeing as you start, you launched this whole thing in in while you've been in PT school, and you've been like committing a fair amount of time to kind of developing your brand and your company and all that. Um, how how do you balance PT school and running your own business and doing remote coaching with people and then also like training yourself? How do you how do you manage that? You know, that's a question that I get asked a lot, especially from other PT students. And I just honestly don't know any other way of life. I, growing up, my my family isn't well off. And so I went to school, played sports in high school, and then still had a job. And then I came to graduate and I worked in the oil field in the day. And then in the evenings, I worked as a personal trainer and still worked out. And then I started undergrad and worked in my undergrad, had a job on the side and just continued on that whole time and for me I think it's just like the daily life choices and things that I truly care about like I care about lifting so I'm going to make sure that I find time for that it's a stress relief for me I'm, I care about um, getting in my schoolwork, so I put that as a priority as well and then other things like drinking and partying those are pretty low on my priority list so they are things that very rarely happen and I think that's one thing that's that separated me from a lot of the students that I was at least with in my cohort. And um, just sort of like the time that it takes to do a lot of these things isn't that, that drastic, especially once you start to get in the groove. Like I can put up a post within 15, 20 minutes at most now that I've gotten good at it. And um, like most people have that kind of time in their day, but it's, are you willing to put in the first few weeks while you struggle at it? And similarly, with like working out for a lot of people, you know, if you are passionate about it, you, if you don't think that you have the time, well, you probably do have the time. It just might not be this drastic thing. It's just about finding um, the right steps to get you there. So what kind of, um, so for, let's say we're, we're talking to PT students here or even clinicians or pretty much anybody that's struggling with like time management stuff. 
do you have any tips or tricks to how you um, maybe find time for things that people, other people would say that, you know, it'd be impossible to fit in your schedule? Yeah. Okay. Um, first one I hear a lot about, especially with PT students is eating well. And I think that like food is something that can be managed pretty easily. I cook most of my food in large bulk stuff. So I shop at like Sam's Club or Costco. I'll buy a bunch of food and then I'll th- I'm like very simple. I'll just throw a bunch of stuff in the oven, let it do its thing. I can keep working and then just come and put it into containers when I'm done. So I'll cook up like a bunch of chicken, a bunch of vegetables, a bunch of potatoes or rice. And that saves me a huge amount of time. Cooking is something that can take up a lot of time for a lot of students, especially if they are trying to eat well. And then um, when it comes to training, a lot of, that's another complaint I hear is that a lot of people don't have time to work out, especially clinicians who are busy with documentation. And I think that if you can find someone that's going to like manage your training for you, or at least find a program that you can buy on the internet, something so that you can just go in, shut your mind off, get your work done. And obviously like the, you know, what is the right training for you? That's probably something that would be for a completely different podcast. But Mm -hmm. uh, I think having someone else take that role for you so that you can just walk in and get it done. And then I think something that obviously that the three of us do, whereas maybe not a lot of other students do is for instance, reading research and again, that can be something that can take up a lot of time for students. Uh, or clinicians, anyone who's not adjusted to it. And so maybe starting off with stuff that might be a little bit easier, like systematic reviews, like large bodies of evidence, or even just going on and finding people that are more informed, like whether you want to join clinical athlete or you want to just get involved in Facebook discussions and just even start watching other things, discussing research. So you start to get an idea of how to do it. Um, sitting down with an article and getting the information that's you know really needed from it doesn't take a ton of time once you know what you're looking for. But it's getting to that point, and you know that, that that might take you a little while. But if you just put in at least some effort towards it, that's probably all you got to do at first. So really, it's just kind of getting started. Like find something that you want to do as part of your schedule, um, schedule it in there, and then just do it. Because once you start doing it and it becomes part of your schedule, your routine, and then maybe even part of your identity, um, you won't sacrifice or you, sorry, you will sacrifice to make sure that you, you know, you work things around that particular thing. I know for me, uh, the past three years of PT school, um, even with juggling two different degree programs, well, three different degree programs, uh, I still (laughs) found ways to get in the gym for like probably 12 to 15 hours a week. Um, which sounds like a lot, but with a lot of like group training sessions and powerlifting, like if we have guys that are squatting in gear, or benching in a shirt, like, you know, your workouts can take three hours pretty easily. So yep. that's one thing I, I tried to not sacrifice or I sacrificed to make sure my schedule, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore, but I made, <laughs> I made sure that I didn't, um, I'm always made time for those, those things. So that meant that, you know, my days were six o'clock in the morning to nine or 10 PM at night some days. Um, but it didn't really matter because that was my stress relief. And, you know, I was able to continue to train and compete and, you know, do what I wanted to do. So I, I definitely feel you on that. I'm probably not as good at the, the clean eating as you are, but. Well, I don't know um, if I would call it clean eating because um, that might be like the bulk of what I eat, but I definitely sit down with a bowl of cereal and all sorts of different options pretty regularly. Uh, I'm I'm lolling on the inside that you're trying to make me feel better by saying you eat bad and you, you use cereal. Um, when I would have <laughs> said like, you know, like three McDoubles and a McFlurry at, you know, 10 o'clock at night. Oh, you Canadians. You're so <laughs> Gosh. That's great. Um, but I guess kind of diving even more into to grad school, I know that, the meat of you know what we want to talk about, what Mike talked uh, kind of touched on earlier, is um, maybe talk to us a little bit about how you've grown through this whole process. We've kind of gotten the last year or so about like kind of keep you know staying <clears throat> staying involved with the, the whole strength therapist business and really getting that going, and then also being involved in the clinical athlete and all these other crazy things that you're doing that are super awesome. But you know, 
you, did you start out that way? Were you that motivated day one of PT school? Or is that something that's changed over time? Um, and then not only that, but maybe like your perspectives and, and your biases and, and all that. How has grad school um, helped you grow up? Grad school has been a huge change for me. Um, yeah, coming in, I was absolutely passionate like this. I came in with the expectation that I was going to be, I was going to walk out of PT school and be the greatest physical therapist ever, which I don't have the expectation anymore. But um, I think that for anyone that gets into it, that's a huge thing to have. At least you want to be passionate about what you're going to do. And for me, while that hasn't been a change, I've definitely changed a lot in my thought process, the things that I value, the, yeah, the biases and and that's a, been a huge change for me. The learning about biases, learning about fallacies, learning what philosophy is, and just even learning how to structure my own thought process and how to go about learning what information is and what knowledge is. So let's maybe, let's do a little offshoot there. Yeah. Um, can you explain those key points that you're talking about? Like what are biases, um, you know, what are fallacies, and just kind of lay all that out there for um, probably some of the PT students and um, also for me who don't really know what any of that stuff means. Absolutely. Okay. So the first thing I would say is bias. Basically, whenever we can think about it, it's it's some sort of tendency that you're going to have towards a certain view where you're going to choose to consider that view over other information and um, you might, that could be a minor bias where you don't even acknowledge it, or it could be a strong bias where you just choose to ignore information that challenges it. Um, in contrast, a fallacy, that's going to be something where basically that's a mistaken belief. You think something, but it's not sounded in any sort of evidence. And there's all sorts of fallacies, all sorts of biases. There's things like confirmation bias where you're going to naturally try to find information that supports your opinion. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon your perspective on it, it's kind of the way humans work. We just tend to have these things and it doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a person, um, but it's whether or not you let them take control of yourself. There's a great book called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. I don't know if you guys have ever read it. Mm-mm. No, I have not. A lot of those factors come from the thinking fast aspect. It's something that does help us in a lot of ways. Having a bias saves time. It allows you to stay safe in dangerous situations. But the problem is that when it comes to a lot more thorough information, it can skip over information that's probably very important. There's a, uh, a great quote from this lady. She's a uh, psychology researcher out in the Boston area, and she made a quote about how humans think. And it goes along the lines of, the brain is predictive in nature, not reactive. And very often we try to create these structures of um, lines of logic that we think are going to happen in the future, or that we see one thing and we connect it to another. And in contrast, like that's not how nature works. We try, humans want to see patterns, but these patterns might not be real. So that sort of falls under the biases and fallacies. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, certainly that's not something that I don't think I've, I had really thought about at all until recently. Um, I know yeah. one, of, one of Mike and I's professors, um, Aaron Hartstein, is really big on like metacognition and, th- and thinking about the way that we think about things. Um, That's great. But really until being exposed to that, those kind of concepts um, with him, I don't think any of this was even apparent to me. Yeah. So when did you, when did you start learning about this and did that kind of, once you started becoming, a, I guess, self-aware for lack of a better term, um, how did that like evolution take place during school? That's actually probably one of the things that, that has primarily happened in grad school for me. And uh, while I think that grad school has been something that I've been I've taken advantage of and utilizing that information and making that transition, probably one of the more uh, larger influencing aspects was clinical athlete. 
And I'll give a specific credit to Derek Miles for this, actually. Derek has been sort of like a, a more direct mentor for me personally. And uh, especially with just even just reading on the forums, just the way that he will put out information. When I first joined the forum, I joined actually my first month of PT school. And I sat down and I had all of these things that I thought, whether it be about manual therapy or modalities, all this stuff. And I joined the forum and there was these discussions going on that just basically threw everything I thought out the window. And, uh, <laughs> you know, generally most people would probably get pissed off at that sort of a thing. And to a degree I was, I questioned it. And as I sat there and I started to look at the way it was written out and the, the lines of logic that were there, I started to look at it and try and why was it that I didn't think in this way? What were the things that I was missing? And I started to read it and try and really understand like what were the lines of logic getting these other people to those where they were at. And fortunately I reached out to other people like Derek and Michael and Quinn and asked them for like, what, is, what should I do to help improve my own information and my own thoughts? And they gave me mostly stuff on philosophy and reading and um, watching videos. And that was huge for me. Uh, learning about just even what the biases and fallacies I mentioned before, but learning what information is, what knowledge is, how those things are different, learning what epistemology is, and how to structure logic and arguments. Those have been huge things that have changed for me, primarily, honestly, from being a clinical athlete and then choosing to take it very seriously and trying to put it into every other aspect of my life which at times probably irritates my wife, but <laughs> yeah. so you would say your, uh, your exposure to, to grad school and even to clinical athlete has, uh, you had your own paradigms kind of coming into this and then, you know, through these experiences that you've had with, with these individuals, it's kind of shifted that paradigm a little bit or, or challenged you to, to widen mm -hmm. your, your mentality or, or drop some of these biases that you may have so you can see things from a different way. Is that right? Yeah. I yeah, I came into PT school and I would say that I was very much of an, a bias towards authoritarian figures. I would never have called them that, but there were individuals that I viewed as being experts in the field. And whatever they said, I took to heart and I didn't challenge it. I was like, oh, totally, that's correct. And they were all of these things that were not supported by any sort of evidence. They were just you know, this guy's opinion. And I took it to, that that was the way that I should think. Okay. And than I was shown otherwise. Okay. Huh. You know, I, I don't think I've ever really thought about that in my, you know, own, um, like grad school career and my own way of thinking, but, um, kind of thinking back and kind of reflecting on that just briefly here, I feel like that was, that was a big thing for me. Um, when I joined clinical athlete in January of this year and kind of going through the same process that you did and, reading some of those manual therapy threads and going, oh, oh my God, I've been lied to my entire life. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to, you know, when you're, when you're faced with stuff like that, especially for Mike and I, we come from a school that's very, very heavily grounded in manual therapy and orthopedics. And we have a phenomenal program. We learn, you know, just incredible techniques and evaluation strategies and all sorts of stuff. And I think that for a lot of schools in Virginia, we tend to be, our students tend to be a little bit, you know, ahead of the curve in those particular things. Um, <clears throat> but when I started getting on the clinic and then being presented with this research, it, uh, it really hit me hard that manual therapy was not the end all be all that I thought it once was. And um, yeah. so just, just along the lines of that, like, you know, I mean, I definitely, I still look to my professors as authoritarian figures, but um, I think I kind of put them on a pedestal a little bit too much. And even within school, we have to realize that, you know, <clears throat> everyone has their own biases. So even our professors that are presenting research to us that talks about the efficacy of manual therapy, there's probably a little bit of bias in the, the articles that they're showing us, or there's a little bit of bias in the way that they're structuring their lessons and, and, you know, presenting the material that they're teaching to us. Um, mm. and I think once you, once you kind of pull back a little bit, you know, you get into that metacognition world and you start looking at like how everyone's thinking 
about what they're doing, how people are presenting things and structuring, you know, like even semantics, like sentence structure, all sorts of stuff like that. When you realize like the why behind what people are doing, I think it kind of opens up your eyes a little bit more. And I think then you can realize like, okay, yes, this is good information. You know, yes, manual therapy can be effective in specific populations. Um, or, you know, maybe it isn't, but, um, <laughs> but it just kind of understanding, like, you know, take everything with a grain of salt and try and understand why they're presenting it, appreciate it, learn what you can from it. Um, but don't put it on the pedestal and think it's the end all be all. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, just kind of echoing those statements, you know, it's, uh, you, you learn all these techniques and, and I know I had the same kind of thing. Like I was like, ah, oh, man, you know, this is it. This is very black and white, you know, like this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to manip everybody for days. It'll be perfect. Um, and, and that's, I think those are important skills to know. And I, and I think I really like the analogy of just like tools in your toolbox. You know, it's, uh, they're different skills that you have and they're different perspectives that you can take, but ultimately you're going to be pulling in the research that you find, you know, all those different pillars of evidence-based practice and like your clinical expertise and your reasoning uh, to ultimately figure out what's best for the patient that you're working with. Um, and so, yeah, maybe it's a manual therapy te technique for that person, or maybe it's, you know, something completely different, like a therapeutic exercise or something like that. Yeah. And I think that there are, I mean, within the clinical athlete world, um, there are people that would argue that your toolbox does not need to be that large <laughs> if, uh, if what you're doing works. Um, shout out to Michael Ray. He's, he's an OG of uh, chiropractic <laughs> medicine. Um, and even, you know, Quinn and Derek and, and Michael and all those guys would, would probably argue that um, if you look at the original second article, those pillars aren't necessarily equal. But that's a completely different discussion. And maybe, <laughs> that's maybe we'll fun. bring Sam back on for, you know, part two of or part six through nine or 12 or 27 of, you know, the movement docs featuring the strength therapist. Um, podcast number 12, <laughs> but being a student, I completely understand where you're coming from, Mike. There are a lot smarter people out there than you and I and Sam that mm -hmm. can just go at it on a completely different level. Um, but I agree with you. <laughs> I just, I just wanted to put that aside in there in case Derek or Miles or, uh, Derek Miles or, uh, Michael <laughs> Ray or Quinn actually listens to my podcast, our podcast. Um, they, they don't like just like crush me with their mind powers. Yeah, they got pitchforks coming. <laughs> um, but but yeah, back back to our discussion. Sorry about that. Um, I do think that there there is a time and a place, and Sam and I have kind of talked about this too. Um, even with things like you know manual therapy, um, some modalities. You know, there may be some specific instance where that might actually be the answer, but we want to kind of yeah. check everything else off first um, yeah. and try to use as much of our, um, you know, efficacious strategies that are supported in research before we go to th start pulling at stuff that isn't doesn't have a good foundation and like objective evidence. Yeah. I'd agree with that. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I feel like just listening to ourselves talk, I, f I feel like clinical athlete is definitely, I know we talk about it, <laughs> it's definitely rubbed off on us a good bit. Yeah, well, I think one factor that even contributes to that more is that, you know, you and I have both attended the scientific principles of sports rehab. And like for me, that was, I went into it knowing a bunch of that information, but hearing those guys condensing, honestly sitting down with them and listening to them talk uh, at the bar like later on and everything that I thought, you know, I could challenge them with, they came back and they shut me down and they showed me why like there was so much that I still needed to learn, which is great. Like I think that's something that I really enjoy about this field is that there's there's so much information out there that Honestly, we'll never end up knowing it all, but there's going to always be an opportunity to be better. Yeah, I completely, I mean, that's kind of the whole point of our podcast is to, you know, always grow and move forward and be a better you. But, but I think that in a lot of instances, 
what you're talking about, about like, you know, becoming a better version of yourself, becoming more intelligent, more wise, you know, whatever it is, a lot of that starts with realizing that you don't know anything. And, yeah. you know, what you think, you know, really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> because the moment that, that you kind of take that perspective, um, you become infinitely more intelligent than if you try to go into a situation and go, oh yeah, I got this. Mm-hmm. And then you get shot down by guys like Derek and Michael and Quinn. There's a great book. It's called um, Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. And it was actually recommended to me by those guys. And this it's, it's done by a reporter and she goes through and it is a very long and dense book. There, there's tons of great stories in it though. And she goes through and talks about all these different reasons why Humans honestly suck at knowing information. <laughs> now we're constantly wrong in, in, in stuff. And uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily like anything to look down upon, but it's something to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah for sure. I was just looking up. That's uh, by Catherine Schultz. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we're going yeah, we'll, we're, we're to have to put this on our, on our book list. Um, yes. I know we didn't directly ask you, Sam, but we one of the things we're kind of working on a side project is um, like good books for like PT students and clinicians to read. And okay. we haven't looked at either of these two books. So that's going to go on our list. And um, I think hopefully with the next couple months, we can kind of crush those two and, and start, you know, learning stuff from from those two those two books. And then the other book was Thinking Fast and Slow. Was that by Daniel Kahneman? Yeah. That sound right? Okay, cool. We'll make sure that we have those that information provided to our listeners as well. So when we, just because we were kind of talking about like the whole bias and fallacy and um, things that we think we know and things that we may not know and all that stuff, um, where do you feel that like anecdotal evidence fits into that, right? Because I know we've we've put a lot of weight so far on like objective stuff and reading research and getting like true facts, but where does the anecdotal stuff fit in? Well, I think that no matter like anecdotal evidence has value, absolutely. There there there's just a something that should come with it is the caution and hesitancy of thinking the absoluteness that comes with it. Just because you think something is happening doesn't mean it is. Like we're just about all the information we talked about before. We are easily fooled by our perceptions and our and the way that we format knowledge. Like we're looking to try and make connections and correlations between things that might not have anything going on for sure. Plus, when it comes to a lot of things that we do, especially in physical therapy, when we're doing things in the clinic, we can fool ourselves in trying to see improvement. Like if I lay, if I, you know, measure someone's knee extension and then, you know, it's X number of degrees and then I lay them down and I do whatever mobilization I choose to, then I check it again, I could push harder to get that extra few degrees and not even be acknowledging it. When I was just in the clinic the other day, I saw a great example of that and where um, the clinician took a weight-bearing dorsiflexion lunge test and he measured it using a uh, gyroscope and then... Uh, laid the patient down, did a bunch of manual therapy, then he did some exercise, and then at the end, he did it again, and I noticed that he didn't have his phone against the patient's leg in quite the same format, and so it probably gave him a couple extra degrees. Now, I'm sure there was some improvement, but you know, it wasn't the seven degrees that he thought he saw, mm. and the problem with a lot of anecdotal or um, just the perceptions that we have ourselves is that that when we look at the scientific evidence, it helps to rigor out that information, helps to reduce those biases. And so I think that in the place of anecdotal evidence, it, it has value and something that we can keep in mind and consider. When there's information that is, let's say, heavily um, provided in the literature and it challenges the thought that you have, you should probably at least consider that. Mm. If you think that manual therapy will fix everything, then you should probably consider changing that opinion. You mean, but now if you have the opinion, like you mentioned before, that there's a time and place, well, yeah, you're valid in that. And it's just keeping in mind that 
You know, just because you see something doesn't mean it's, it's, it's what you believe it to be. And that, that can be very hard for a lot of people. Embracing that uncertainty. Yeah. Really realizing that you don't know what you think you know. <laughs> no. I feel like it, it just, everything kind of comes back to that concept that you're not as smart as you think you are. Yeah. Because there's just like, there's just so much, I mean, that's, that's one when I read research, when I talk to more like, you know, intelligent people that have a greater knowledge base than I do, I always feel just completely blown away and feel like I've learned nothing in the past seven years of school. (laughs) Because it's like, how can I have come this far? And such a simple concept like this is just way above my head. It just blows my mind. I can, I can completely relate to that. But then there's times where someone will say something like, oh, my knee hurts. And then I'll make the connection that it's related to a tendinopathy. And then I can go off and off on information in regards to that. And then it's like, okay, I might not know everything, but at least I know more than I used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess that all comes down to perspective too, right? If you're climbing up the mountain and you never look back, all you see is that you're not at the top of the mountain. Oh. But if you turn around at some point and appreciate that, you know, you've come this far, that's something to be celebrated. Yeah. So you're a wise man. Well, I, I just read a lot of like uh, Pinterest <laughs> inspirational quotes in my free time. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, I just like to pretend about things. So. I'm not as wise right. as I think I am, but I'm probably wiser <laughs> than those Pinterest quotes that I keep <laughs> citing. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, you had no idea what you were in for. I'm sure, well, you probably knew a little bit, but I don't think you really knew. You weren't. You were, what was your other social media you love? It's Pinterest, and what's the other one? <laughs> oh, God, I don't even remember. Tumblr? Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I started. Mike, it, we had one conversation at one point where I told Sam that I was going to start um, because him and Jason are, had already cornered the market on like like <laughs> cool content on like Instagram and <laughs> Facebook and YouTube that Tumblr was like the <laughs> the undiscovered part of the internet that that nobody was using for like therapeutic exercises. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> oh man. It's a niche. Here we go. (laughs) I would would be interested to see what like subgroup of like millennial culture would be interested in like my Tumblr posts. (laughs) Because I mean, Mike, you know me pretty well at this point. We've, we've had a lot of experiences together. I just feel like I have such a weird niche of like pop culture and just obscure trivial knowledge and stuff that it could be pretty weird. <laughs> Never a dull moment though. It's always no. interesting. No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad the, the three listeners know how weird I am now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we're running up uh, near the end of our show here. We've got a couple other questions that we'd like to ask you uh, to, to segue. Uh, <laughs> although we could probably talk about uh, all of these different experiences that you've had, Jake, in another podcast too, I would imagine. Um, We're just gonna like play one, just record me talking about random stuff for like an hour. We should, and then see if everyone just unsubscribes to w- our podcast. <laughs> like, what is this? Um, but Sam, you know, you're you're two and a half years into uh, into your PT school program and, and grad school and all that. Um, what are some things that you wish you knew before you had started grad school? Like if you could give advice to your past self, what would it be? Yeah, no, I think that one thing I'll say before I give any of this information is that this is like to any student that's going to go into grad school, not just who I was, who I was. Cause I think in one piece is I thought about this a bit before we talked. And so the first thing I would say is, Drop your know-it-all attitude. As we've talked about already on this podcast multiple times, you don't know that much. And especially going into it, you probably have all these preconceived ideas. Like I went into it with this huge emphasis on strength movements and how I was going to correct all these people's stuff. And I wish that I had dropped my own attitude more and been more open to seeing other sides when I initially was there. 
I came in a little bit hot-headed and I wish I had not done that and gone in with a bit more open mind to see other perspectives and just learn as much information as possible. I think that uh, one thing that I should have kept in mind more was that I, I want, I, instead of trying to be right in an argument, try to look to learn whatever information I could so that I could be more right in the future. Okay. Um, another aspect is I wish I had learned how to read evidence better, not just go and look at an abstract and try and take away information from it, but to actually open up uh, an article, know how to read a methodology and what to look for, look at the results actually myself and not just the discussion and read what the author wanted me to believe. Um, learn a bit about philosophy, know what the different kind of biases are, learn about the different kind of fallacies and epistemology that's going to be at play. At least building like some basic logical skills in that so that I could structure arguments. And that way I'd also just be more considerate when, you know, I'm being told information and not taking it at a face value and considering it for myself. Questioning the same thing with like you guys mentioned with your own professors. I'm not gonna go and tell my professor that they're full of shit, even if I don't agree with what they're saying. But at least instead of just taking whatever they say and believing it at face value, like considering what they're saying and you know, um, keeping in mind that they have their own biases and that I'm not necessarily gonna put into what they say in my own belief system. And then one additional thing that the reason I mentioned, like this is for other students, not just me. One thing that I did was that I chose to go out and read way more, way outside of what was just being taught, going to clinical athlete, but also just reading research myself. That's something I don't think most students do. And if I can encourage anything, it's that. What you're being taught in school is probably way behind the times, unfortunately. When we're being taught about scapular dyskinesis and how that's the thing to look for with the shoulder and, you know, in contrast, there's a whole other theory of scapular robustness that's been out for like three years and we don't even discuss it. That's something I think is going to be an issue for you when you graduate and you haven't considered any of that other information, especially when you leave and now are going to be responsible for your own education and not having someone just hand you information. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are probably the main details. That's awesome. So you'd really recommend, you know, taking that, that active role uh, in, 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 your, in your quest for knowledge and really trying to stay up on top of that information. That's great. Okay. What, uh, what are the other ones you wanted to ask, Mike? Um, the, oh, we got one for you, Sam. What is the number one skill, attribute, or trait that you feel like makes an excellent PT? Hmm. I'm going to, considering this is like, picking one thing is not easy, but if I was going to only pick one detail, I guess I'd probably say passion. Like you don't need to be the smartest. You don't need to be the most experienced, but if you really care about the field and care about people, you're going to do great. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's simple yet incredibly eloquent and meaningful um thank you <laughs> i feel awesome. so canadian because i'm just complimenting you all the time uh, <laughs> you can be an honorary canadian so, I, uh, don't worry i'm i'm not gonna i'm not even gonna try to sing your national anthem because <laughs> all i know is oh canada that's it that's the extent of that song yeah, I won't start singing it, but I will say that I can I can sing both O Canada and the American anthem. It's impressive. It's like being bilingual, but you're speaking English yeah. in both situations. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you, Sam. Uh, so uh, this this coming Friday, uh, we have uh, Oxford debates coming up, and so one of the topics that we're debating is should dry needling be an entry level skill? So I was kind of curious on like what your opinion was on dry needling in general. Is it a certification that you're going to pursue after you graduate? And then what are your thoughts about dry needling being taught within a PT program? Are you guys having an Oxford debate at your school? Yeah, yeah. we do it as part of one of our classes. That is so cool. It kind of ends um, up becoming like just crazy, especially <laughs> because the last couple of years, the 
um, the concussion debate about whether or not PTs should be involved oh. in concussion. It gets pretty heated between the AT students and the PT students. So they don't do that one anymore. But uh, <laughs> the dry needling one is of particular interest to, to both of us. Um, just to hear your thoughts. Um, sure. And then also because in our AT program that me and Mike went through, uh, we got the Graston M1 course as part of our curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things Mike and I were talking about was, you know, what if down the road um, they start actually including dry needling certifications as part of the curriculum? Okay. Well, uh, you know, my thoughts on dry needling in general would be that it is much like most of the other quote unquote modalities that we can utilize. They have some like questionable research around them. And if I'm, if I'm purely coming from an evidence-based perspective, I think that it's pretty safe to say that dry needling doesn't have a ton of support mm -hmm. outside of placebo perspective, or maybe I shouldn't say placebo, but non-specific effects. And that kind of leads me to, you know, generally, I'm trying to avoid utilizing those sorts of things personally in my practice as much as possible, trying to focus on other aspects. I think there is maybe a time and a place for that. Mm -hmm. um, I come from an area where back in Alberta, the province I'm from, dry needling, specifically um, uh, intramuscular stimulation. Have you guys ever seen that one? Yeah. The, yeah. And that, that is like huge there. And I'd say the majority of PTs like get that certification. And so before I came to PT school, like that's something that I heavily wanted to learn. And now for me, at least, I don't think I need it. Like I think I can get the same results, if not better without utilizing it. And so um, as far as the, like, am I gonna get the certification? Probably not. Okay. I know that I've got a lot of friends and family that think it's like this really great thing and they are encouraging of me to get it so i can't say that i will not get it mm -hmm. um, i might get a little bit pressured into it but we'll see <laughs> um <laughs> as far as like it being taught in a pt program you know we're, we're taught ultrasound and i like i don't know what your guys it was like but i got taught ultrasound over like three weeks and honestly like how long does it take to learn how to do that and what conditions do you even use it for? You, I could probably sit down and teach my um, the cohort below me everything that they need to know about it in like an hour and a half, and they'd be fine. Mm -hmm. I think dry needling is honestly not that far off. Like, if you guys have had it done to you or you've seen it, it's honestly not that dangerous. Like, there's a lot of things that sure, if you're stupid and you do it near major vascular bundles, yeah, that's not going to be safe. But you can make that same argument for most other modalities and. So I think that, yeah, it could be taught in them. I don't know if it's going to be any, of any greater benefit to PTs. Okay. Like personally, I'm, I'm not of like the argument that we should be utilizing it. And I'm also definitely not of the argument that we should be fighting for the right to do it. I th like that, that's definitely um, not for this podcast a bit, uh, discussion, but <laughs> I think that, that we, have, we should have different priorities within our profession. And personally, I think that one's lower on the totem pole. I got gotcha. you. All right, Mike, go ahead. Take it, take it home with the, the big right. question at the end here. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the last question that we're going to be asking you today. You know, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come and talk with us and kind of share your perspectives. Uh, we're going to be asking this question at the end of all of our podcasts. And so, you know, at the Movement Docs, you know, we believe in always moving forward in all that you do. So based on all of your previous experience and knowledge in life, love, the pursuit of happiness, what is one piece of advice that you would give anyone listening to this show to help them be the best versions of themselves? Well, if I was going to give one piece of advice, it'd probably be to t uh, unrelenting positivity. Okay. I think that no matter the situation, being a positive individual and keeping in mind that other people are probably good individuals and you know, generally in life, we're going to be challenged to be in situations where it'd be easy to take a negative route, but rarely is that going to be in our favor. And so whenever possible, staying positive and putting out positive energy is going to be of your greater choice and benefit. And trying to keep that in mind in all situations, 
choosing to be positive with patients, choosing to be positive with other coworkers, being with anyone, I think that you'll see greater benefit by choosing to be as positive as possible. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we almost come full circle with that because toward the beginning of the podcast tonight, you were talking about um, just how people would kind of make fun of you for being positive, but that that tended to be a, a really big part of who you are and kind of how that how that's helped you grow through life and through grad school. And so I just feel like that's like super fitting in this like ultimate meta way. Um, so thank you for that, Sam. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, once again, good. thanks for, for being on with us tonight. Um, thank you all of you out there in podcast land for listening to our um, somewhat intelligent and somewhat goofy ramblings. Um, everyone, please go follow Sam on Instagram and Facebook. He is the strength therapist. Um, and he's also got a pretty sweet website where he does you know remote or distance programming. Um, and he's just generally a really awesome, nice guy that tries to help everybody that he can. Um, feel free also to, to check out Clinical Athlete. I know we mentioned it quite a bit. It's a pretty awesome uh, forum for clinicians and for students. And it is by application, so you will have to go through an application process and kind of get vetted before you come in. But it's a really awesome place to learn outside of the classroom. Uh, also want to give a shout out to our guy, Danny, um, the Kind Lion Audio, who's our uh, our audio guy, because we have an audio guy now, Mike, um, which is pretty cool. So check out Kind Lion Sound if you're in the, uh, in the Maryland, uh, D.C. or Virginia area and you need anything from, um, you know, mixing to uh, just advice with things like podcasting or recording. So, yes. And as always, if you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, or a topic that you'd like to hear us talk about, uh, you can always email us at tmdmovementdocs at gmail.com. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>